Hello, and welcome to Out of the Archive Box, a podcast from the team here at the Borthwick Institute for Archives at the University of York. In each episode, we'll bring you stories, insights and discoveries from the many fascinating archives held here. And in this episode, Sally Ann Schoen and Lydia Dean will be introducing us to an exciting new project about the World War II stories of the Women's Land Army in the North Riding of Yorkshire. But first, we've had a busy start to 2022. A full rundown can be found in our monthly update on our website, but here's a few highlights from what we've been up to in January. The start of 2022 saw the completion of The Northern Way, Archbishops of York and the North of England, 1304-1405. The project was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council from 2019 and run by the University of York and the National Archives with the support of York Minster. The project investigated the political role of the Archbishops of York in the 14th century. The Archbishops' Registers website already featured high-quality digital images of the registers of the Archbishops that we hold here at the Borthwick. The images can now be viewed alongside searchable, indexed summaries of all entries from each 14th century register. The site will shortly also include around 3,500 summaries from the many records of government that relate to ecclesiastical affairs held at the National Archives in Kew. A new website front-end is also currently in production, which will contain more information about the registers themselves, why they were created, and why they're so useful for research in the medieval period. Thanks to our ongoing work on our parish record collections, and the completion of a cataloguing project, we added several thousand new archival descriptions to Borthcat across December and January. The largest number of these were added to the Hickleton Papers, the archive of the Earls of Halifax. Although the bulk of the archive has been catalogued at the Borthwick for many years, we're constantly receiving new additions to the family and estate records. January saw the addition of more than 40 new boxes of material to the online catalogue, comprising estate papers deposited by Lord Halifax's solicitors, an addition to the records of the Garraby and East Riding Estates, The estate papers include a wealth of material relating to Lord Halifax's mining interests across Yorkshire, as well as a fascinating account of the Wood family and Hickleton village and estate from the point of view of a long-time member of staff, Clarence Hallowell, who served as head brewer to the estate's own Hickleton Brewhouse from 1935. Our search room team have also continued to add more complete parish record catalogues to Borthcat, with nine new catalogues and more than a thousand new archival descriptions added in the past two months. These include the York City parishes of St Olav and St John Oosbridge, as well as catalogues for Coxwold, Cotmanthorpe, Birdsall, Seton Ross, Sherburn in Haverford Lythe, Millington and Calton by Snaith. St John Oosbridge arguably has the most varied modern history. The church, which dates to the 12th century, sits at the bottom of Micklegate in York, and was closed in 1939. Since then, it's had a life as an institute for advanced architectural studies, and then more recently, a licensed bar called, rather appropriately, The Parish. The Women's Land Army played a vital role on the home front during the Second World War, and, until now, the only known administrative records of the Women's Land Army in the North Riding were those of Winifred Jacob Smith, County Secretary, which are held at the Yorkshire Farming Museum at Merton. 
To these, we can now add the administrative records and correspondence of County Chairman Lady Celia Milnes Courts, housed at the Borthwick as part of our Milnes Courts archive. So, join Lydia Dean and Sally Ann Shearn as we hear more about our exciting new project. Fertile Ground, records of the Women's Land Army in North Yorkshire. In May 1938, the 54-year-old Lady Celia Milnes Coates was approached in the strictest secrecy by Baroness Denman. Lady Denman had been asked by the Ministry of Agriculture to reform the Women's Land Army and she wanted Lady Celia to take charge of the organisation in the North Riding of Yorkshire. The Women's Land Army had originally been established in 1917 and ran for two years until 1919 when it was disbanded at the end of what was hoped and believed to be the war to end all wars. Now the prospect of another European conflict was looming and once again women would be needed to step into roles traditionally held by men to keep the country fed. By the time war was formally declared on Germany on the 3rd of September 1939, preparations were already well advanced and the Land Army had been recruiting members since June. The UK had been divided up into regional areas, each led by women who could, in Lady Denman's own words, use their personality and influence to ensure that the scheme would be a success. In the North Riding, Lady Celia as County Chairman was at the heart of a new and rapidly growing division of the WLA, ably supported by County Secretary Winifred Jacob Smith, whose papers were, until now, the only known survivals from the North Riding administration. But who was Lady Celia, and how do we know so much about her work with the Women's Land Army? Lady Celia was born in 1884, one of the twin daughters of Liberal politician Robert Crewe Milnes, later the first Marquess of Crewe, and his wife Sybil Graham. Her family were wealthy and well-connected, and like many women of her class, Lady Celia was active on various committees and charitable causes from a young age. In 1906, she married Sir Edward Coates and settled at Helperby Hall near York, where she raised her family. When she died at the impressive age of 100 in 1985, she left behind a wealth of archival records detailing her family history, her personal relationships, and her work with not only the Women's Land Army, but also the Yorkshire Women's Institute, the Parents' National Education Union, the Diocese of York and many local and national charities. In 2013, the whole of this archive was gifted to the Borthwick Institute by her family. The Women's Land Army records take up just three boxes of the 64 boxes overall, but their value is immense. When Lydia Dean and I began work on the Land Army papers left by Lady Celia, we found 1940s cardboard folders bulging with original typed and handwritten documents, detailing every aspect of Land Army life in North Yorkshire ranging from the earliest plans for the reformation of the WLA to deciding wages and working conditions, recruiting and equipping the land girls, finding them suitable farms and responding to the many and varied queries, complaints and requests from land girls, land army helpers, farmers and government officials. The three boxes capture the reality of running the land army in the North Riding in all its messy, complex glory. And as soon as we began sifting through the contents, we knew we had something unique and very special. Today, Lydia and I want to share some of our findings with you as we introduce Lady Celia's wonderful Land Army Archive. Becoming a Land Girl 
It now seems clear that there will be a greater need than was previously anticipated for trained women to take the place of agricultural workers immediately on the outbreak of war, and it has consequently been decided to intensify the recruiting campaign for the Women's Land Army to institute, where possible, short courses of training, and to set up the Women's Land Army County Committees on a peacetime basis to assist with the necessary arrangements in their counties. Excerpt from the Memorandum to Chairman and Organising Secretaries of County Committees of the Women's Land Army, 25th of May, 1939. Recruitment for the new Women's Land Army began in earnest in June 1939, and thanks to Lady Celia's archive, we know a great deal about the process of becoming a land girl in the North Riding of Yorkshire. Promotion of the new service was all important, and not just to women, but to the farmers too. Heavy farm work was still very much viewed as a job for men, and some farmers were unwilling to employ women, thinking them incapable of the work or the hardships involved. As well as appealing directly to farmers to support the Land Army through visits to meetings of the local branches of the National Farmers' Union, Lady Celia also took the rather ingenious route of appealing to their wives, daughters and sisters through her position at the Women's Institute. An early highlight in the archive is a pencil script for a talk Lady Celia gave to the WI, in which she challenges the many preconceptions about women land workers and calls on the members present to share these points with farmers of their acquaintance. Yorkshire, she says, may be one of the best counties in England, but is not living up to its reputation in the number of land girls it employs, blaming what she calls a certain amount of prejudice about land girls in the north. As well as using their local contacts, Lady Celia and the committee also took part in national recruitment campaigns. We have a copy of the script of a national broadcast given by Lady Denman in 1940, and the archive shows arrangements being made for committee members to be present at labour exchanges and even the annual Yorkshire show to answer questions about the Land Army and sign up potential new recruits. In 1941, a special news film was shown at cinemas, and local representatives set up tables in the foyers to capitalise on any enthusiastic cinema-goers. Whilst in the same year, Miss Jacob Smith wrote to Lady Celia to say that one enterprising Land Army helper had even set up a display in the window of her local cooperative stores. The Land Army was looking for physically fit women between the ages of 18 and 40. Under-18s would only be accepted in exceptional circumstances, or if they were within a few weeks of their birthdays. While they preferred women to be unmarried, they did accept married women, so long as they understood that they would not be given leave when their husbands were home. Prospective recruits filled in a basic application for enrolment, giving their name, address, age and current occupation, as well as the name and address of their employer and their clothes and shoe size. This was passed on to the county organising secretary, and if the woman was the right age and wasn't already engaged in crucial war work, then they would be invited to be interviewed. In the North Riding, interviews were to be carried out by members of the committee, and it was emphasised that they should be carried out very carefully in order to get the right sort of person. It was very important that recruits understood the terms of the job and the drawbacks of farm life, in particular that the work would be tiring and dirty and would involve long hours in potentially remote locations. It was equally important that the recruit was suitable in terms of character and capability. The archive contains a huge number of notes passed on from initial interviews, and the information they felt it necessary to record can be quite eye-opening. As well as the things you might expect, age, relevant experience, good references, the interviewers made notes about the recruit's appearance and apparent respectability. 
19-year-old Winifred was slim and wiry, rather a poor type, but not rough and very willing. 18-year-old Alice was a farmer's daughter and a good class of girl. 18-year-old Dorothy was sensible about country life and fond of animals. And 23-year-old Gladys was short but wide and strong-looking, and plain enough that she wasn't likely to run about with the soldiers. Nationally, recruits were classified A, B or C types. A meaning well-educated, B meaning they had a secondary school education or a shop-type girl, and C meaning they had an elementary school education and were a domestic servant type. However, the North Riding Committee had a slightly different slant on these classifications, which we know about thanks to Lady Celia writing it down for us. According to her, a Class A girl meant any of one's friends of the, or the professional classes. A B-class girl meant she had attended high school or secondary school, not quite A-class, but a better sort of typist or shop employee. A Class C meant an elementary school education, a better class servant, shop assistant, factory hand, or a chauffeur or gardener's daughter, for example. North Yorkshire was apparently unique in also having a final D classification for what they termed a rough sort of girl, and which Lady Celia described as the farm servant class or slum dweller, or less good class factory workers. Thankfully, there's no evidence the Langirls themselves knew of their classifications. Farmers were also evaluated, of course. For all that the committee wanted farmers to support the scheme, they felt a great deal of responsibility for the land girls in their area and were not prepared to place them with just anyone. The archive includes plenty of comments on good and not so good farmers and the kind of land girl that would or wouldn't suit them. Some were dismissed very early on. On one prospective farmer, Miss Jacob Smith has simply written, a very peculiar fellow would not advise it. If a Langell recruit passed the interview and provided satisfactory references as to her character and work, as well as a medical certificate, she could be sent for training. While recruits with farming experience were the ideal, many had never done farming work of any kind and found themselves getting something of a crash course in all aspects of farming over a month to six weeks. The training took a great deal of arrangement in the early months of the Land Army in the North Riding, at first, training was carried out at the Agricultural College at Askham Bryan outside York. But in the spring of 1940, this was taken over by the War Office and the committee had to rely on farm training instead. During training, board and lodging were paid for by the government and the Langirl also received a small weekly allowance for personal expenses. Suitable farms had to be found where farmers would be willing to train rural recruits and arrangements made for accommodation during training as well as decisions made on just what the training should include. It was crucial that the land girl should be of real practical use on farms, and to that end they needed to be trained in a wide range of tasks. When the first cohort of North Riding recruits finished their training at Askham Bryan in December 1939, they had received training in tractor driving, milking, poultry and stock feeding and general field work, how well recruits did or didn't do in their training, their particular strengths and weaknesses, were all taken into account by the committee when finding placement for the trained land girls. Recruits were also given a uniform, of course, and I think it's fair to say that the Land Army uniform is still a very recognisable one today and a common sight at 1940s reenactment weekends. A memorandum of February 1940 lists the following uniform items. Gum boots, overall coats, pullovers, hats, breeches, shoes, mackintoshes, stockings, shirts, dungarees and armlets. 
Breeches, shirts, pullover, shoes and hats were worn for more formal occasions, while the dungarees and gumboots were favoured for field work. All of these could be replaced, but only after a certain length of time, so Langos were expected to make do amend as much as possible. Uniforms secured and training completed, the new recruit was finally ready to begin full-time work in the Women's Land Army. The Land Army Life As I wash the bottles, as I scrape manure, sometimes I remember that England is at war. Sometimes I remember on a Saturday that my hope of glory is higher than my pay. Except from a poem in the Land Girl magazine, July 1940. Lady Celia's archive contains the names of hundreds of women who left their homes to live on farms, in boarding houses and in hostels, toiling together or alone in the Land Army's common calls. We know that the work was hard, the hours long and the conditions often challenging, because they tell us so, in their own letters and in the reports of the North Riding Committee and the group of county ladies who acted as their helpers. But the Land Army life could also be hugely rewarding. Women learned new skills, made new friends, not just among their fellow land girls, but also with the farming families they worked with. They fell in love, travelled to new places and made a vital contribution in a time of national crisis. The archive shows us both sides of the Land Army, the bureaucratic work needed to keep it functioning and the physical and mental stamina of the land girls who carried out its mission. Once the Land Army was up and running, the archive makes it clear that the greatest part of the committee's time and efforts were taken up by the placement and ongoing welfare of the land girls. Farmers could apply to the committee for a land girl, and it was up to the committee to find a suitable match for the work, the farmer and the location. We have an enormous file of correspondence with farmers, and this, and indeed the archive as a whole, shows how much care was put into assigning the right volunteer to the right placement, and ensuring they had adequate and convenient accommodation. As early as April 1939, Lady Celia raised the matter of billeting land girls on farms at a meeting of the National Service Committee. With evacuation and a discussion, Lady Celia argued that evacuees should not take up all the spare rooms on farms that might be needed for land girls, or the whole scheme would fall to the ground. While land girls were expected to be willing to cycle up to four miles to reach their place of work, ideally it was preferred they would live on site or very close by, and that they would be treated well by the family they lodged with. Committee members or their local helpers visited the farms personally to inspect the accommodation, and they made it clear that the land girls should not be put to use in the farmhouse doing the cooking or other domestic work, though they might help out with washing up and such, as they would at home. The archive shows this could be something of a grey area. At least one farmer was rejected from the scheme because the committee suspected he actually wanted a girl to do all the housework. In another case, the committee received an anonymous letter informing them that one of the land girls on a local farm had done no land work for a month and had been working in the farmhouse. The concerned citizen finishes with, I think it is unfair to the others who have to work hard. The committee arranged for someone to visit the farm to find out more. When there was no room on the farm, land girls could be billeted in private houses nearby or in one of the WLA hostels, some did not work on farms at all, but were assigned to the North Riding Flax factory at Easingwold, for example, and lived in the low hostel under the care of the hostel warden. 
Land girls were paid by their employer, be that the farmer or factory owner, and at a set rate determined by the county. The archive includes much discussion of land army wage rates. Land girls were paid for a 48 hour week, which included four hours of travelling time. Anything over 48 hours was paid at a special overtime rate, and land girls had a day and a half off every week, typically Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday. They earned a paid day off after every two months service, with a maximum of six paid days leave a year. Money was deducted for their wages for board and lodging, up to a maximum amount, as well as for unemployment and national insurance. Disputes over working hours, the correct payment of wages and allocation of time off are some of the more common complaints across the archive. I still cannot understand my terms with Mr B, one landlord wrote to Lady Celia. Now I'm more or less on my own with him. It's about 10.30 on a Sunday morning when I get finished with cleaning out cow houses and the stables, and as far as I can reckon, I don't mean seem to be getting paid for it. Other land girls found the lack of leave difficult to cope with, especially when brothers, fathers, husbands and boyfriends were home from the army, or at times like Christmas when they only had one compulsory day off and could not make it home to their families. And of course, no matter how carefully Lady Celia and the committee matched land girls to their placements, some simply didn't work out. There are a large number of letters in the archive from land girls who struggled to cope on remote farms, far from towns or even a bus route. Please, Lady Celia, you've got to find me another place where it's not so lonely, one land girl wrote. I could never settle down. It's right on top of the moors and it's miles from anywhere. I'm the only land girl round here. In fact, there aren't any other girls at all round here. For land girls who grew up in towns or cities in particular, it could be a real shock to find themselves miles from civilization, with no one but the farmer and his wife for company for months on end. Lady Celia and the committee took such letters seriously. Whatever they might have privately thought, from the evidence we have in the archive, they showed the land girls great sympathy. They listened to their concerns, replied to their letters, and visited them regularly by car and on horseback to keep an eye on their welfare and address their worries in person. If a land girl felt cut off from the local town or village, they might be provided with a bicycle so they could travel more easily. If two land girls asked to be billeted or work together, they tried to accommodate them. And if a land girl was unhappy and wished to leave the farm they were on, they worked to find them another, more suitable placement, and expressed great satisfaction if it proved to be a success, as it often did. There were resources in place for the care and well-being of the land girls, both nationally and at the county level. The Women's Land Army Benevolent Fund was launched in 1942 to provide financial assistance to land girls in times of illness, disability or other hardships. And the archive includes a file of papers relating to grants to North Riding land girls. There were also land army break houses at Clandidno and Torquay for land girls who were under severe strain and needed a short holiday. And land girls could also subscribe to a monthly magazine, which included news, funny poems and stories, and photographs from across the land army. And we have two issues of that in the archive. At the local level, Lady Celia, the committee and their small army of local helpers, provided points of contact for land girls by visit and by letter, dealing with everything from wage disputes to replacement gumboots and pullovers. In addition, Lady Celia liked to invite small groups of girls for tea at Helperby Hall, and we have the papers showing the painstaking arrangements she made to ensure all of them could be collected and returned by car from their various billets, however remote. Land girls were encouraged to set up their own local clubs, 
and we know, thanks to the archive, that one such club was established in the Young Women's Christian Association on Cumberland Street in York in 1943. They met on Wednesday nights at 7.30, and by June about 60 girls had joined, although it was noted that it would not be able to do much for a few months now the haymaking had begun. Lady Celia and the committee offered assistance wherever they could, and the letters from Langirls often reflect a warm and quite informal relationship between them, sharing family news and expressing concern over ill health, or looking forward to future meetings. One of our favourite items in the archive is a lengthy copy of a letter from Lady Celia to a friend in London in 1945, trying to arrange a short trip to the capital on behalf of 10 or 12 Yorkshire land girls. The girls were members of a land army club in Scarborough, and she writes that hardly any of them had ever been to London, so they would be thrilled to see the tower or anything of that sort if she could arrange for someone to act as a tour guide. She also mentions that her husband is going to try and get tickets to the zoo for them, and finishes by saying that the girls would be quite prepared to club together and produce one pound between them, but if he thinks that's too inadequate, she could always add a little herself. Leaving the Land Army This is to confirm your release from the Women's Land Army. Our headquarters and the Ministry of Labour have been informed accordingly. Please return your uniform, complete with badge, to this office as soon as possible. Not until the uniform has been received at this office will the balance of clothing coupons, if any are due to you, be sent. If you have not already done so, it will be necessary for you to give your employer one week's notice. On behalf of the WA Committee for the North Riding, I should like to thank you for the good work which you have done as a member of the Land Army and which, I can assure you, has been much appreciated. Letter from Lady Celia on behalf of the North Riding Women's Land Army Committee. This was the understated yet sincere note on which many land girls left the Women's Land Army in North Yorkshire and headed out into their post-service lives. For many of the women, this was to marriage and their own homes or to care for frail parents, and for some it was to return to their civilian jobs or to start new careers. Others left the Land Army in ill health or simply reached the end of their period of service. Lady Celia's papers contain many letters from herself, the county committee and individual land girls navigating the end of their time in the WLA with varying degrees of success. Any North Yorkshire land girls wishing to resign their posting needed to write to the local representative, Lady Celia, to explain their desire to leave. Their application was considered by Lady Celia and the county committee before a response was supplied. Girls were required to provide at least a week's notice to their employer and from the letters in the archive, it seems that some did this part before writing to Lady Celia for her approval, both to speed up any of the administrative processes that needed to take place, and to get out of unsuitable, even untenable, working conditions. One land girl wrote that, Things have become too much for me. I don't feel as though I can work by myself any longer or put up with the treatment I've been having from Mr J, both in the house and at work. Often, the process could be extended by the need to verify any application to leave. For those girls wanting to leave or to transfer their posting to another county in order to care for frail or sick relatives, their home address was subject to an investigation by the county secretary's office in order to make sure all was above board. Some letters in the archives also come from concerned parents of the girls worried about their daughters, as this extract shows. 
Ever since she's worked at this farm, she's been continually having colds one after the other, and when she came home this weekend, she had a cold again, and I had to send for the doctor. Naturally, I'm very worried about her, especially with her losing so much weight during the past 11 months, she's lost two stone. Evidently, the work is too heavy for her. Lady Celia seemed both approachable and sympathetic in her approach to the girls. Her comment to her fellow committee members was to say that one understands they're feeling anxious, as two stone is too much to lose in 11 months, and advising the girl concerned to hand in her notice. Dear Sir, Lady Celia Coates of Helperby Hall has asked me to send this girl, a member of the WLA, for a medical examination and your report of her health to be sent to Lady Coates. As this girl is very slow in her work and Lady Coates wanted to know if this was due to any illness or just due to her being lazy. Letter to Dr Duck, Easingwold, New Year's Eve, 1941. Those land girls who were applying to resign due to their own ill health were required to have a medical certificate produced by a doctor following an examination, as well as being visited by Lady Celia in person. Some girls' applications were taken with a large pinch of salt, like one land girl who was noted to have had lumbago, but probably making the most of it now, or who were considered too much trouble to try and place on different duties. For others, needing to resign through ill health was a more difficult decision, and in the archive there are several letters from Lady Celia explaining that, although a girl might wish to stay on or return, it's not possible to keep on the register of the WLA members who've been ill for any length of time or the date of whose return to the Land Army is indefinite. Girls who have been released from the Land Army on medical grounds may apply for reinstatement, and this will be sympathetically considered. Further, before the establishment of the NHS in 1948, Medical appointments, including diagnostic x-rays and minor operations, all needed to be paid for at the point of need. Funding for these appointments, especially where the cause of ill health or injury was potentially attributable to the girls' work in the WLA, was available through the Land Army and the Benevolent Fund. The Benevolent Fund also contributed funds to women leaving the Land Army due to pregnancy, or who were returning to straightened circumstances following the war. Although they weren't required to, Many land girls left the WLA upon either their marriage or the demobilisation of their husband. Some of these relationships had developed during the war, with notes on several engagements or marriages between land girls and men on the farms they were working at. There were also women who were already engaged or married when they joined the Land Army, whose partners were deployed across the UK and abroad or were serving in the Navy. The attitude of one farmer towards a married land girl working on his farm is made clear in a note in the archives, where she was seen as a most satisfactory, conscientious volunteer, remained the only well-behaved one when five others had to be sent away for episodes with airmen. Even after their husband's demobilisation, the papers note that some land girls did not leave their agricultural posting until they found suitable marital accommodation. In 1945, following the end of World War II, it was proposed that women serving in the WLA, who had signed up for the duration of the war, be permitted to apply for willing release to return to their pre-war lives and work. It was acknowledged that a wholesale release of land girls would have a very damaging impact on the vital agricultural work that would need to continue while servicemen returned from the war and the country recovered. And therefore it was suggested that if land girls could remain in the land army until at least the end of 1946, it would help to mitigate any impact on the farm and particularly dairy work they were carrying out. However, there was also knowledge that since the start of the war, women had been working under often hard conditions, many miles from their homes and families, and with limited leave. And so from the 1st of December 1945, land girls with four years' service or more could apply for willing release. 
from those with between three or four years service could do the same from January 1946. In the months that followed, willing releases could be granted to other members of the WLA, beginning with those aged over 30 years old. The majority of the resignation papers in the archives show applications for willing release after a standard period of four years' service. However, using the rest of the archives, Lady Celia's welfare notes and letters from the girls themselves, this can help to unpick many of the varied stories from the individuals in the North Yorkshire Land Army. Typed annotations at the top of each form give details of where the land girl's last posting was and where her home address was. Many of the girls placed on North Yorkshire farms weren't local. Many were from the industrial towns of the West Riding and some from further afield, including Norfolk and Kent. The forms also give a brief indication of why the girl was leaving the WLA. Several girls were returning to their previous employment in the factories in York and Leeds or to shop work. One girl was noted as leaving to train as a teacher in a new college set up in Sheffield. These emergency training colleges were established in 1945 to speed up teacher training in light of new reforms proposed by the Education Act 1944, which among other things extended the school leaving age to 16 and increased the accessibility of high school education to girls and the working classes. The end of the war was bringing about great changes to society and the North Yorkshire land girls were heading out into it. Legacy of the Land Army It wasn't until 1950 that the Land Army was disbanded, and so for the women who remained in the Land Army after 1945, there would be five more years of work to carry on with. Indeed, many girls only became eligible to sign up in 1944 and joined for a period of at least two years. Continuing to support food production in the post-war era was the vital role of the WLA across the country. In North Yorkshire, in the spring of 1950, Lady Celia was tasked with organising the county farewell party, not just for her girls in the North Riding, but for the girls in the East Riding too. Whilst originally three different parties had been planned for the East, North and West Ridings, it became apparent that the three areas had different amounts of money left in their welfare funds, which were being used to pay for the well-deserved celebrations. A letter to Lady Celia from Winifred Jacob Smith suggests holding a North and East party at York instead of one just for the North at North Allerton. She writes, I think the East Riding girls might come to York, and of course, as we're all under the office for so long, several East Riding girls worked in the North and vice versa, and they might therefore not feel quite such strangers as they might do at Leeds. Also, the three organisers, including myself, when working from York, all did a bit of both the North and East Ridings, so the girl would know us. As well as pointing out the fact that York had much more choice of venues for holding the party. The party took place in October 1950, and the Yorkshire Post reported that over 800 members of the WLA met at the Roundtree's factory in York, alongside the farmers and their wives whom their lives had been intertwined during the previous 12 years. Following that party, annual reunions, still well attended, continued in York, organised by Lady Celia. Long after the end of the WLA, some land girls continued to be in touch with the farmers they'd lived and worked alongside. One of those land girls, Olive Mary Schofield, returned often to the Easingwold farm she'd been placed at. In Lady Celia's papers, Olive Mary was noted as having a distinction in her WLA proficiency test and, as well as throwing herself into the farming work, she also became heavily involved in the life of the community around her. 
She was the lieutenant of the local Girl Guides troop, vice president of the Girls' League in Easingwold, a Sunday school teacher and secretary to the youth committee. Indeed, her efforts were so noticeable that she was asked to write a piece for the Land Army Bulletin in September 1944. For many of the girls, their time in the WLA would leave a lasting impression. The work of the Women's Land Army and their associated service, the Timber Corps, or Lumberjills, also changed the North Yorkshire landscape, both, require, both requiring ever-increasing supplies of food and timber to fuel the war effort. Large swathes of woodland were felled, and crop and dairy production significantly intensified. Lady Celia's surviving papers include records of North Yorkshire farms from 1940 to 42, recording acreage, stock, crops and number of workers. As part of the North Riding War Agricultural Committee Labour Subcommittee, Lady Celia reported on the training and preparedness of the WLA, but also retained detailed notes about male farm workers who were being called up or who were being released from military service on account of their reserved occupations. These records provide a detailed insight into changes to farming across North Yorkshire and into the types of work all agricultural workers were involved in, including beekeeping, harvesting hops, potatoes and turnips, hay production, ploughing, hedging, milking and market gardening. Lady Celia's archive of papers on her work with the Women's Land Army brings home the experience of land girls and farmers alike across North Yorkshire during the Second World War. The archive has now been box-listed and descriptions of the files made available through our online catalogue, Borthcat. If you'd like more information on the archive, or if your ancestor was a member of the WLA in North Yorkshire, please do get in touch with us and we'd be happy to provide more information. But for now, we'll leave you with the words of one North Yorkshire land girl, Olive Mary Schofield. Olive appears in our archive, but she also wrote a book about her experiences in the Land Army, entitled from Down to Earth, a story of a land army girl during World War II. Her family have kindly given us permission to quote from it. Thank you for listening. I am glad I had the chance to live and to work under the old conditions. Glad that I had the chance to ride on a swaying, horse-drawn load of hay before it gave place to a noisy, dirty tractor. Glad to know that I could feel at home there, that the ways of the city are only a thin veneer, and that underneath I belong to the country, to the land of green fields and brown earth, of smokeless skies and wide horizons. Now, when I pass a field, I want to look over the hedge and see what the crop is and how it is doing. And however long I live, I shall always thrill at the sight of a line of stucks up the stubble, or new lines of corn up a dark brown field, or at the touch of the soft muzzle of a horse. In spite of the work, it was a wonderful life, and I would not have missed it for anything. Well, that's all for this time. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to know more, you can contact us on Twitter via at UOYBorthwick or email us via borthwick-institute at york.ac.uk. If you'd like to discover more about our collections, you can do so through york.ac.uk forward slash borthwick. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to subscribe. And if you have ideas of what you'd like to hear, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back soon with more stories from the archives.